Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray now that as we come to the scripture, we will indeed find out the greatness of your loving heart. Father, I pray that that resounds deep within us, that we would never doubt that love and that we would experience it moment by moment. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts and chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, please. I want to read verses 54 through 60. Acts chapter 7, please. Hear the word of God. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. The they, them, there is these religious leaders, the him is Stephen. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, last week we we took care of this larger passage beginning somewhere in the middle or to the end of chapter 6 through chapter 7, a couple of verses even into chapter 8 to talk about this event in the life of the early church the stoning of this man named Stephen. And I asked the question, which seemed to be the right question to ask of this text, and that is, why is it here? Uh, the answer um, being that it, it's here, it seems very significant. Um, Luke could have included a number of things in this um, history of the early church. Uh, he included this, so why? It's significant, it takes up a lot of space. Uh, this man Stephen shows up here, and only here really, uh, we only know him for a brief period of time, yet he gets the, the longest sermon recorded, at least in the book of Acts. And so, so why that? And, and of course, certainly this significance of Stephen being the first martyr, the first one that appears to die uh, for the faith. Uh, so it's significant at that level. But it, we answer the question by saying it's significant here. Luke includes it probably more significantly. The Holy Spirit includes it uh, because it, it provides for us a theological rationale for the gospel to leave Jerusalem. And remember, the disciples of Jesus were to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Uh, But no one seemed so inclined to leave Jerusalem. It was this religious place. Christianity at that point in time was understood to be, or thought to be at least, kind of a sect of Judaism. Um, And there's still the disciples of Jesus would gather at the temple and so forth and so on. It seems as if given the accusations made against Stephen, although they sort of a negative spin to them, but the accusations made against Stephen leads us to believe that Stephen was teaching in these synagogues, these Greek-cultured, Greek-speaking synagogues, that uh, the temple and temple worship was no longer necessary. No longer necessary because Jesus had fulfilled all of that. He is the real temple. He is the very presence of God. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. And so there's, there's no need any longer for this temple. We don't need to be in Jerusalem to worship God. 
Um, in fact, the customs of Moses, of circumcision and other things that pertained especially to ancient Israel, were no longer necessary. Those were things true in the Old Covenant, but now Jesus had come and fulfilled all of that. And so the gospel was no longer contained there. The, the, the very presence of God, not at all contained there, but could go on. And, and so Stephen preached this sermon saying that, that this is the way it's sort of always been. I mean, God spoke to, Mo, to Abraham and to Moses outside of this holy place. Other places could be the very presence of God too. He could be there and, and he was. Uh, Joseph was blessed in Egypt. Um, Moses said that there was another that was going to come after him, that they should follow after him. The temple couldn't contain God. Even Solomon said that. And then he went on to say that the very tradition that these very ones were following was a tradition that rejected the prophets. All those who spoke of the coming Messiah were killed by them. No wonder that they killed the righteous one. They killed Jesus Himself. And you know the story, they got angry with, with Stephen and eventually killed him. But uh, the gospel spread. Uh, we'll come to chapter 8 and realize the persecution will come and the gospel will spread. And, and there'll be never any need then to go back to Jerusalem to worship God. The gospel goes uh, to the ends of the earth. This morning I want to ask a little different question of this particular uh, passage. Um, I want to pose the question and then unpack it because it could be a little discomforting. And I want to ask this question. I want to ask the question, is there anything in the death of Stephen that will help us die? Is there anything here in the death of Stephen that will help us die? Not only that, is there anything here in the death of Stephen that will help us when those we love die. Now even as I ask that question, I realize in some sense my timing is bad. Because we just finished VBS. And, 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 and usually after VBS, some of you here may be coming for the first time because your kids are in vacation Bible school and this was a very fun week and a very fun church. And now you walk into church and the pastor asks the question, what will help us die? You thought, well I thought this was a fun group. Uh, the kids seem to have fun. Uh, so I, I share with you that, that I preach along and along. We take up passages of Scripture as they come to us. I started the book of Acts some time ago. We'll work our way through it. And what we're trying to do here is to listen to God, to listen to the text. We're not trying to make things up. We're trying to think about the things that God thinks about. We're trying to think about the things that God would have us think about. And so on this particular day, this is the question that seems to flow from this. Not only why is this passage here, that is, why did Luke, why did the Holy Spirit include it here to show us something about this witness of Christ, but there's something here about the death of this man. And he died well. There was a, uh, an inquiry made of John Wesley at one point of time about his people. And, and what was different about them. And one of the things that Wesley responded in the, in the context of those early Methodists was, he said this, he said, our people die well. And Stephen certainly died well. Not well in the sense that it was a pleasant kind of death, but well in the sense that he had no fear, no bitterness, no anger in the course of his own death. And so the question is, is, is there anything here that will help us uh, in our own death and the death of those we love and this I don't think is a morbid question I think it's a reasonable one uh, we you know I needn't labor at all the inevitability of death for us it happens to us to us all we only know of two in the scripture 
who didn't seem to die, Enoch and Elijah, uh, but it seems to happen to the rest. Uh, Lest Jesus comes back first, each of us anticipates that we will die. I I trust that's your anticipation. Uh, Thus, the topic of death, it seems to me, needn't be a conversation stopper or even a thought stopper, which it often is. But we need to, to think about it and ask the question, is there any comfort here? Is there any help here? And I think there is. Um, and I know it's a tender subject. I, I know it's, it's, it's not easy because some of us may be facing death sooner than the rest, and we know that. Uh, some of us may have buried people recently, as have I. Um, and though I know the rawness of the topic, even to allow it to sneak into our minds, but it needs to. Because we needn't grieve, the scripture tells us, as those who have no hope. And so the question is, from whence is that hope? Uh, can there be hope in the midst of this thing called death? Uh, as a child of aging parents, I know that it's, it will happen. My children, we've talked to them about this just because of the kind of family we have. Uh, our children understand that it is likely if things go the way things generally go that um, they will bury us. We will die during their lifetime. And as the fear of every parent, there still is that consideration that that role may be reversed and they may die before us. We simply don't know. But it's a reality. And the question now is on a good day as I stand here on a good day. How do I think about this? What help do I have? So I think that question is a helpful one. Thus, I ask it. What is there? Is there anything? What is there in the death of Stephen that will help us die? What is there in the death of Stephen that will help us when those around us whom we love die? Now, it's unlikely, though. I think we have to at least hold out for the possibility in us that our death may be one like Stephen's that is as a martyr. I don't want to play on this long because, because it doesn't seem to be part of our experience, at least now in the United States of America, that we're likely to be martyred. That could change, and I just want to allow for that possibility. Because part of the death of Stephen, part of the uniqueness of it, is that he did die a martyr's death. He did die specifically, at least the occasion of his death, was because he was a follower of Christ, and even because of his particular witness and how he went about that. And so I think we need to keep that in our minds as well, that that there is a certain sense in which, a certain possibility that you and I might die as martyrs. Our callings may change. We never know. God may call anyone here to go to a particular place in the world that is presently very hostile towards Christians. Uh, We also don't know that we may be in a particular place where we may just turn somebody's crank in this rather crazy and irrational country in which we live in these days that someone may take our life simply because we're followers of Christ. And I think the answer, is there any help in us in this, comes from the lips of Jesus. You know this passage in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, ends what we call the Beatitudes with this expression, again, this, this, this very wonderful thing. If you mention the Beatitudes of Jesus to almost anybody, they'll smile and say, that was a great sermon of Jesus. It's one of the best pieces of literature that we have. Excuse me. 
And yet it ends, the, the, the opening part of it, the, what we call the, the blesseds, the beatitudes like this. He says, if you want to be blessed, he didn't put it quite like this, he just simply said blessed. But, but, but part of the thing that comes to us, if you want to live a blessed life, a happy life, really, you could translate that, or a life that's favored by God. If you, blessed, if you want to live a blessed life, he said this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. So you get this sense, I think, Stephen, though he wasn't here at this moment that we know, in following Jesus in Jesus' early days, would he not have known that? Would he not have been taught that? by the apostles when the early disciples of Jesus were devoted to the apostles teaching would not the apostles have taught this to them blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you there's a blessedness you see in all of that the apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 4 in verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so Peter's prepping these ones to whom he's writing. Now they're in a time of persecution. And so he's saying, don't think this is unusual. I think, speculation, I think that if Peter were sitting among us today, he would say, your lives in America is unusual. I told my people that it isn't strange when fiery trials come upon them. And he says, fiery, with all kinds of figurative meaning, but a literal, a literal meaning being, you could be torched for the sake of the gospel. Some had been in the days of Peter. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted, and so he sort of backs off even from the fiery trial and just talks about an insult, which is much more to our experience. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so he's saying, look, in the midst of all this, in the midst of this kind of suffering, you can trust that the Spirit of God will be upon you, and he will help you through it. In fact, you're, you're, his glory will be upon you. His glory will be shown. He was a suffering one. You are a suffering one. You'll be blessed. And at that moment, we get this sense, just as with Stephen, we can anticipate a moment if we're being persecuted for the sake of Christ, that he'll be close to us and with us and help us during that time. Uh, but even as I say this, I don't want to romanticize death, even in the sense of being persecuted. I don't, I don't want you to think it is a light thing because death still is an enemy to us. Uh, notice how, this, how uh, Paul puts uh, death in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. He says, verse 25, about Jesus. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And certainly it is. Now, for those of you who are thinking about the work of Christ, you're thinking, well, didn't Jesus destroy death? And yes, he did. But death still exists. 
death still happens till he returns and does away with it. So he's ruling and reigning now, this passage says, until death is completely destroyed. And it will be completely destroyed, that is completely out of our experience, when he returns. But it still exists. It still happens to us. Now, death wasn't part of the original creation, of course, in the sense of human beings dying. Adam and Eve were created. Death was not in them. Death came as a result of sin. Paul puts it in in Romans in chapter 5, verse 12, like this. He says, therefore, uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread through all men because all sinned. So death came as part of the judgment upon sin, the separation from life. And so death still happens. Death is a reminder. Every time somebody dies, it's a reminder to us that sin exists and that God judges sin. Christians die. Unbelievers die. We all die. So it's still that enemy. It's still this thing that's foreign. It's still this thing that we see and say, this shouldn't be. And then we also know it, however, as a conquered enemy, as I said, because of the work of Christ. Christ has come and conquered sin and death. You remember when when Jesus was speaking to his friends, Mary and Martha, um, after his friend, their brother, Lazarus, died. And it was on the occasion that Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. He, he speaks to Martha and he says this to her, to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now when he says, when Jesus says, uh, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he goes on to say, he who believes in me shall never die. He doesn't mean you'll never physically die if you believe in me. I mean, that would be, that's simply been disproven. Because even though we may believe in him, uh, we still die. But what he's saying is you'll never experience this eternal death. There's life in me because you'll be resurrected. As I will be resurrected. Later, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The law of God comes and convicts us of sin. Right? The punishment of sin is death. And so, what's going to be able to overcome that? Only Christ. Because he's the one who's taken the penalty for our sin upon himself. That the law might be satisfied. And that we might, those who believe in him, live. Enemy conquered, though yet part of our experience Still, but because it's a conquered enemy, for those who believe, we can walk around saying that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For God, our shepherd, is with us. If you believe in Jesus, the Lord is indeed your shepherd. In fact, he's the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And thus you can trust that through it, he will be with you. You can say this, for me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. That's an amazing statement. To die is gain. 
if to live is Christ. And so it's an enemy, though a conquered enemy. In fact, the way that John puts it, the apostle, when he is seeing what he's seeing in this great revelation in the last book of the Bible, Revelation in chapter 12, he puts it like this of martyrs, and he says this. He says, And they've conquered him, that is the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In other words, there's, uh, here's how we win. We win over Satan by trusting in the blood of the Lamb that he's cleansed us from our sins, by giving testimony to that, even if it costs us our lives. And we talk about Stephen being the first martyr. It's interesting. Because, as I mentioned before, the word for witness in Greek is the word martus, which we translate as martyr. So in one sense, we're all martyrs. Because in, all, in one sense, we give our lives for the truth. We give our lives for the testimony of Jesus. And so we put to death everything that's not related to him in the context of our lives. And yet there still is this sense that the very best witness, the most reliable witness, is that witness who will swear even upon his own life that it's true. And he said, I won't deny this even though you take my life. That's where we are as believers in Christ and thus we need to face that in the context of our own lives. That even on our death, we're giving witness to the very truth of Christ. Now what is there in this death of Stephen that will, will help us? Certainly, as we think about him being a martyr, and we think about the words of Jesus, we think about the words of Peter to realize that in, in those moments we trust that God will enable us to rejoice because we suffer as he suffered, we suffer as the prophet suffered his very glory will be upon us but notice in Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 speaking of Stephen it says but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said behold I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God now there's nothing in this passage that gives us any hope that before we die, we're going to see any vision of Jesus. Uh, this isn't normative. As we read through the rest of the scripture, nowhere else does it say, right before you die, you're going to catch this glimpse of Jesus. Or when you start thinking about Jesus, thinking about death, you're going to catch this glimpse of Jesus. Um, Stephen did. It was a great blessing from God to him. But being recorded means we need to go to school on this. We need to think about this. What did he see? Because that, the reality that he saw is true. It informed his death. Why can't it inform ours? Now, he sees Jesus on the throne. He sees Jesus standing. Now, most of the uh, passages, all the passages concerning Jesus in heaven refer to him as sitting. And there's been great speculation about why it is that Jesus stood when Stephen saw him. Uh, and, and frankly, nobody knows why, because he doesn't say why. Some would say, well, he stood to receive the first martyr. That's wonderful. It might be true. Maybe he stands for all of us when we come. I don't know. So I'm not going to do anything with Jesus standing. So if you have a certain pet little deal about Jesus standing there, well, you just hold to that. 
just don't bother me with it. Um, because I simply don't know and I won't be satisfied, frankly, because it just doesn't say. I think it's a wonderful thing, it's a nice thing and all of that, but it, and a true thing, but, but that's all I can say. But what I do know is true, and true for all of us, is the very one he sees is the Son of Man. And I think that's what we need to have in our own heads, what we need to have in our own souls, in considering death. The one who receives us is this one called the Son of Man. Now that little expression, Son of Man, is used 81 times in the Gospels. All of Jesus. 79 times out of 81 times in the Gospels, it's used of Jesus by Jesus of himself. And the other two times, it's used of other people quoting Jesus talking about himself. So it's the favorite title of Jesus for himself as the Son of Man. Now there is something about Stephen saying he saw the Son of Man. He could have said, I've seen the Lamb, as if he's been slain. That's what John said in the Revelation. He could have seen, I've seen the Son of God. He said, I could have seen Jesus the Christ. He said, I could have seen Christ Jesus the Lord. There's all kinds of things he could have said when he saw him. But he said, I see in this moment, at his death, right before, right before his own personal suffering, he says, I see the Son of Man. What's that mean? And what's that mean there? How did Jesus mean it? Now it's clear as you read through the Gospels that when Jesus used the Son of Man of himself, people weren't quite sure what he meant until the very end. It's kind of a strange, ambiguous expression. It's used in the Old Testament uh, of, of, of Ezekiel, for instance, the prophet. Many, many times God refers to Ezekiel as the Son of Man. Sometimes in the Old Testament, a few times, it's used of the nation of Israel. Um, uh, son of simply could mean, has the characteristics of. When James and John are referred to in the New Testament as the sons of thunder, you know what he means. You're, you're, you're dangerous uh, people. Uh, sons of thunder. You have the characteristics of thunder. You could go off at any time. Son of man, you have the characteristics of a man. And so when God speaks to Ezekiel, son of man, he says, you have the characteristics of men. You're a man. I'm going to speak to you like that. And now as the prophet goes, speak, son of man. And here comes Jesus now on the scene using this expression of him. And he uses it in a variety of different ways. He uses it when he speaks of his suffering. He speaks of the fact that the son of man has no place to lay his head. He uses it of his own pending crucifixion. The son of man will go to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be betrayed. The son of man will be crucified. He uses it of his own authority. He says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he says, a day will come when you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, coming in glory. For the Son of Man will come to judge and the Son of Man will come to restore. Because the Son of Man is something that was only revealed at the very end of Jesus' time on earth. In fact, when he was talking to Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, and examining Jesus, puts it to him like this, Matthew chapter uh, 26. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. In other words, when he heard that, when he heard Jesus say, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, he said, oh, you're claiming to be God. Because then it clicked. Because there was a reference to one like a Son of Man in Daniel in chapter 7. Turn there quickly, if you have a Bible. Daniel chapter 7. Right after Ezekiel, that'll help you, I know. Daniel chapter 7, the first of what we call the minor prophets. Now this begins, chapter 7 of Daniel, a very strange section in the book of Daniel. Strange in the sense that Daniel is starting to see these visions. And they're strange ones. He sees all these beasts coming. And these beasts appear to be nations which have great power. It isn't power on their own generally, but it's a derived power. It's given to them, but, but power. And the question is, will these great nations devour us? Will they take over? Will they conquer? And is there anyone who could conquer him? And then, then um, he sees this. Daniel does, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That is God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was Fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So there we have the scene. These nations with their power on one side. God sitting on his throne, looking like that. The other, the books were opened, verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This was out of one of the beasts the nations. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So God conquers and even though it looks like they have some power for a time, verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the, cl- with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came <clears throat> to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus was saying, I'm that very son of man. And I have authority over all things. And all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I have authority over every nation and over every language. I have authority over every people. And my kingdom will last forever. That's what Caiaphas, the high priest, heard Jesus say. That's what was meant by the Son of Man. And so as Stephen looks into glory and he realizes the one who will receive him is the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, one who's come, one who's come to take on all of our suffering, one who's come to be exalted on high. That's what he sees. Because you see, when we were first created human beings, we were created to take dominion over the earth. We lost that because of sin. We were to rule the earth under God in righteousness. 
But when unrighteousness came, we lost the ability to rule in righteousness. And thus came the curse. And who would restore us to our rightful place as dominion over the earth but one like us, one like the Son of Man? And, and, and so here comes Jesus, and you know the story. You know, Jesus, the very Son of God, comes born of a virgin, uh, grows up, takes on ministry, comes and he, and he suffers. And he suffers a death that's, that's a horrible death. And then he's exalted on high. And why did he suffer? He suffers because he takes our sin upon himself. He came, he says, not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many, this very son of man. And so Stephen looks at the son of man and he knows this. You're like me. You suffered. You're exalted. You rule over everything. And therefore, if you stand there, son of man, and you watch them stone me to death, then I must believe that this is best. That this is the way my homecoming should be. Because you know what it's like. You know what it's like to suffer like this. And even more. And and you control everything. You control every stone, you control every thought, you control everything. You're the, you're the son of man, the right hand of God, exalted. You know all of this. So I must believe. And therefore, I'll trust you and I'll endure every stone that comes my way that you might be exalted and you might be glorified. And so you see, as we face our own death, what we need to keep in mind is the one who will receive us is this Son of Man who knows exactly how we feel. He knows every piece of suffering that we're experiencing at every moment in time, most especially every bit of suffering that comes as we die. So no matter how our death comes, whether it comes as we might think light or as it comes heavy, easy or hard, long or brief in the context of the dying process we know that God is there and he's the very one who knows because he's the son of man and he knows the suffering and he's sovereign over the suffering and we have to trust that if that is the suffering that he has decreed for us at that time then that must be best for our homecoming and as we see those we love die the same is true It's the very Son of Man who will receive them. It's the very Son of Man who knows their suffering. It's the very Son of Man who's sovereign over all things because he's been given authority over every nation, over every power, over every language, even over death itself. He's the one who says that he has the keys of death in Hades. And thus we must trust him. Oh, do we pray for healing? Sure. If that would be more glorifying to God than our homecoming in that particular way. But if that does not come, then we must believe and we must trust that the very Son of Man who will receive us, the very Son of Man who knows, the very Son of Man who suffered, the very Son of Man about whom it is said his throne is a throne of mercy and grace to help us in every time of need, will. Two statements from old dead guys. 
John Bunyan. In the book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he writes this, even as he thinks about his own death. And he thought about his own death often because he was in prison for a great deal of time. And in the midst of that, he said this, one of the things that would sustain him, he says that I must learn to live from God that is invisible. We would say, I need to learn to live from God who is invisible. That is, I can't see him, but I need to learn to live from him. And what Bunyan meant from that is I need to learn to live from his word. I need to hear him. I need to believe his word is true and that needs to inform my life. And I raise that because this point of Jesus being the very son of man to receive us needs to be in our thinking. And it needs to inform the way that we die and the way that we think of death. He's the one who suffered who knows. He's the one whose throne is a throne of mercy and grace to help us in time of need. He's the one who has authority over all things and all people. Therefore, to allow that to inform us, that he will order the path of our own death. And he will receive us in glory and those we love. When did Glenn Sutton die? A year ago? I don't know. I've lost some people lately. Dear friend, Glenn Sutton, in his 80s, you don't know about him, uh, from Denver. Uh, In fact, he was a man who gave uh, a charge to me when we became a particular church way back in 1990. Uh, Known him for a long time. Big, strapping, strong man died at 82. The last couple of years of his life could only be classified by those who looked on as miserable. Uh, The last time I saw Glenn, uh, he was in bed. Um, A small man, his six foot something, 200 pound frame was a shadow of that. And I remember uh, speaking at his funeral from Second Corinthians in chapter 6 I'm sorry it's chapter 4 verse 16 where the apostle says this we don't lose heart though our outer nature is wasting away and our inner nature our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, I'm sorry, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I said this, and I believe it, that though as I looked upon Glenn, his life looked miserable, I had every confidence that God was renewing him inside, day by day. I could not see it. He could not tell me about it. But I believe that it was going on. And we need to garrison our own minds with thoughts like that. That though I may be in a coma, though I may have a difficult time, though those I love may be going through a difficult time, to be trusting that even though what's on the outside is wasting away, that God is being faithful in the soul, God is being faithful on the inside, and that he's bringing renewing day by day. A man by the name of 
Andrew Reve, you would not know him. He was born in the 1500s, died in the 1600s. He was a theology professor in Holland, but a Frenchman. And um, he um, preached a sermon on Christmas Day, 16, I believe, 50. And uh, he, he took sick after that sermon and died two weeks later. And in the dying proce- process, this is how he described that time. He said, the sense of divine favor increases in me every moment. Now remember, he's sick and he's dying when he writes this. Or at least speaks it and someone else writes it. The sense of divine favor increases me in, in me every moment. My pains are tolerable and my joys I cannot estimate. I am no more vexed with earthly cares. I remember when any new book came out how earnestly I long for it. But now that is all but dust. You are my all, O Lord. My good is to approach you. Oh, what a library I have in God, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are the teacher of spirits. I've learned more divinity in these ten days that you have come to visit me than I did in fifty years before. Now, death is an enemy. It is nothing to take lightly. But for those of us who trust in Christ, it is a conquered enemy. And we needn't be afraid. We need to realize that there is one who is the very Son of Man who waits to receive us. And this one who is the very Son of Man has suffered in every way as we, yet without sin. Meaning he suffered far more deeply than we could ever imagine. He even suffered the penalty of sin, which you and I will never know. And thus, even as he went to the cross, it was way more traumatic than our dying. Because when you and I die, we know that the sting has been taken out. We know that we won't experience hell. When Jesus faced death, he knew he would experience the penalty of hell. So, so he knows suffering way more than us, and he's there in glory, this very Son of Man. But yet this very Son of Man, Son of Man sits on a throne, that's a throne of mercy and grace, that will help us in times of need. And he's the one who has authority over all things. Thus, we can trust him with our lives, with the lives of others, as we die. And we can trust him with the lives of others as they die. Trusting that if he brings healing to his glory, great. Trusting that if he doesn't, he will help. And that in those days, it may well be said, though we may not be able to say it, that we learn more divinity than we ever knew before. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and us as as we think about this thing we hate to think about. That you would grant to us hope and grace, peace and favor in such a way Uh, that would enable us to face death honestly but with great hope and that we'd see it as it is that time that we have again to trust you to walk with you to believe you 
and to worship you, O Son of Man. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the benediction, so just sit for a minute. I want to introduce uh, those who have, some of those anyway, who have just recently joined with us. Um, You'll find the names of various ones in the insert this morning. Some are here during this first service. and uh, Let me introduce the ones that I have names for who are at this service. Uh, When I announce your name, if you could please come and just sort of stand up front here. Um, I have some questions for you and uh, so that you may be greeted by the congregation. Um, Clinton, Katie Brown, Todd and Ann Holmes, Lynette Hosek, Lene Hosek, uh, Stephen Kenna LaRue, um, Isaac McFeeters, and Robert and Bethany Seacrest. If there's anybody else here who thought they were going to be introduced today, and I don't have your names, I didn't say it, please come. This isn't a sign from God that you shouldn't join the church it's a clerical error, if that would be the case. The Son of Man doesn't make those kind, but I do. It's uh, good to uh, greet brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, these have been interviewed, as we know, by our elders and shared their testimonies there. And if you haven't joined with us and yet you've been coming, please let me encourage you to join with us. It makes the work of our elders lighter and easier to know that... Uh, that we have a place in your life and you in ours. And this is the way that we understand that and formalize that. Um, I have these questions for them. It's good to be able to, to stand in front of a group who don't have stones to throw. Uh, and uh, we'll be happy to hear, yes, uh, I believe in Jesus. So let me ask you these questions. First this, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy, do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel, do you? Do you now promise and resolve and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you, are, you will endeavor to live as a follower of Christ? Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in his service of God and its ministry to others? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? Do you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church? Stay there. Let me ask you to stand. Um, After the benediction, rather than rushing out that way, I want to ask you if you have a moment to just come forward and say hello uh, to these folks here who have just uh, joined with us. The um, response to the benediction is a long one, longer than usual, so you may need to look at it as you say it. Uh, And it is this. It's a biblical phrase, so you may know it. Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Amen. Okay? Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. The word amen just simply is, is your seal on that to say, yes, so be it. You really believe that. Um, and I, I think we can only say that if we know him to be the Son of Man who's died for us and been exalted. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. 
to any wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Amen.